So I want to begin with an introduction, some thoughts about that, and then go to Romans. First, I want to begin with the significance of the Holy Spirit. Why is the Holy Spirit so significant? Let me borrow some phrases from a wonderful teacher, Ray Anderson. Ray Anderson has said these things. They're quite interesting. A world without Jesus, but with the Spirit, would be one filled with power, but not presence. Interesting thought. A world without Jesus, but with the Spirit, would be one filled with all kinds of power, but you don't have the relationship essential. It goes on. Interesting comment. And then he said, Pentecost can serve as a compass that performs two functions, one theological, one experiential. Orient theologically, the Holy Spirit orients us to the inner logic of God's incarnational manifestation in the world through Jesus Christ. Theologically, the Spirit points to Jesus Christ and helps us to understand who and what He is. In terms of experience, the Holy Spirit orients us to that redemptive that vision of redemption, that through Christ's presence and ultimately through Christ's coming. So the Holy Spirit is quite important to us. Let me give you just another quote from Anderson. If I can get it off of here. But he wrote, Without the light of Pentecost as the empowerment of the Spirit, the resurrection recedes into mere historical memory. Without the light of Pentecost, the Spirit may have empowerment. The resurrection, this is something down there if you make it all above your own. So, Pentecostal empowering experience without the incarnation of Jesus Christ is like a sailboat with neither oars nor rudder. It can only move when it, there is a wind, and though it cannot steer itself when it is moving. So the Holy Spirit is very, very significant in our lives. There are several approaches. This is one of the things that you've done an outline. I'm not going to talk about except just briefly because it comes up. There are three ways that people approach in theology the Holy Spirit. One is the Pentecostal approach. The other one is, I'm going to call it a communal approach. And then there is the traditional evangelical approach. Now, the difference between these is that the Pentecostal people, the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to them. The difficulty often that I see, it becomes, obviously, the essence of power, and rightly so. But the big problem is it's often taken as an independent. So we just deal with the Holy Spirit. On Thursday, when I was swimming, there's this gentleman there brought this young man who's from Ethiopia, from Liberia. He's a Christian man, very bright, dedicated, outgoing Christian man. He talks about the Lord and Jesus and so forth. Very evangelical. And he wanted to introduce me because he's trying to write a book about his own biography and background and struggles that he goes through and things that might help others. So it's this friend of mine who loves to read religious stuff. <laughs> He's not a Christian, but he likes to get knowledge about the Christian faith. So he wanted to introduce him to me because he wants to write a book because I've written some, maybe I can help him. But I spent some time talking with this young man. And finally, in the conversation, he says, uh, Have you spoken in tongues? And I said, No, I haven't. His attitude seemed to change toward me a little bit. 
he's cited some scriptures out of Acts and so forth about the significance of speaking in tongues. And I said, I have not sought such a gift. My stress in my Christian life is, can I develop those virtues, those kind of character traits that reflect my belonging to God? That's where I put it. Well, soon he left. But changes in mind. He didn't talk a lot about anything. When it came to the Spirit, he's the power, he's the one we talk about, and this is how you get it. This is a distinctly Pentecostal approach. It all came to center on this. When I was doing my doctoral studies in California, I was pastoring a little Alliance Church who had been without a pastor for four or five years. They knew I was there, so they asked if I would be there. And I'm happy to do it. Anyway, a group of people came, that someone knew, came to the church from Southern California. We were in Santa Barbara. And their main goal is to convert all the people in this small little church into full-grown Pentecostals. And they came to me. I was the pastor. So, pastor, well, why? Can we do this? I said, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. My job is to guard the congregation. And so we had long discussions. Finally, since I didn't confirm them, they decided that they would leave. So this is this approach. The other approach, I don't know how to tell you this, I'll just put it in communal or community. It comes from this book here, God the Spirit, which has really shaken up for the last three or four years, much of the academic world. He was invited, I think it was to Princeton, to give a long lectures on this. Everybody was raving about this book. It's called God the Spirit. I've included him in my book a little bit, because I thought he was just important, and if you, know, if you want to be an academic guy, you sort of include everybody. But... What he says, and I will read, I just, it's hard to do all this in a couple pages, so I'll just read to you what I wrote. This is Wilker says, the function of the Spirit is to create community that entails placing persons in a conscious solidarity of responsibility and love. The Spirit for him is not a person. It is, and he goes down, it's a dynamic force that works throughout the world bringing people of diverse opinions and diverse cultures back into unity and harmony. This is his position. Not necessarily mine, but it is his. And uh, he explains, to explain the unifying power of the Spirit, Wilker adopts a metaphor, what he calls a field force, that unites persons in a community of equality that stands in contrast to the perception of the Spirit in the Western world. He does not want to attribute the notion of person of the Holy Spirit in Western theology, especially if the notion of spirit is understood by a comparison with an individual center of action or being in and of itself alone. That is, one ego contrasts with another ego. So that's what the spirit does. Rather, he interprets the spirit as a, we do not interpret the spirit as an independent center of willing consciousness. The Holy Spirit, he says, is a public person. By public person, he interprets the person of the Spirit in terms of concrete manifestation of selflessness that finds a specific revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. And he goes on. The person of the Spirit simply denotes the power of God's presence that transforms and powers and liberates the power of sin and that distorts and disintegrates genuine community. And he uses another word, renaissance or interaction. Well, that's one way, and that's made some impact today. 
my view still stands with the traditional view. And I want to argue that the Holy Spirit is, in an essential way, the Spirit of Christ. But that has a little bit that needs to be thought about. But He is the Spirit of Christ. There is an undissolvable relationship between the Spirit and Christ. I write that they should not be separated. They are integrally bound by the will and purpose of God. Okay? Now, when we come to the Trinity, and I don't know if you have, do we have a copy of the outline between you that we had in our plan? Well, let's see what you got. You've got one, I think, that says the traditional trinity. Do you have that? Yep. That's the English. Okay. Well, the last one, too. Last page on here. Okay. Well, I just put this in here just so that you may have some idea of what we mean by the trinity. We see a song in church that works in time with I believe in God is one. I believe in the Holy Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the one. Now, what do you believe about three and one? <laughs> well, this is just a suggestion to you that one day for my students I wrote out. Points two and three are very, very significant in my thinking. Number two, God, one, undivided existence, and I try to stay with traditional language, exists in three persons. The next two words are simultaneously and eternally, and has no other existence than this triunal one. Okay. Can I just insert something? Sure. That single sheet you have, you already have in this packet. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that. I did these at home, and then yeah. when, I, when I ran them off here, then I included it in the yeah. packet. So that's just, that's just something to give you to hang on to. I think it's accurate. It certainly needs a lot more explanation than I have time to do this morning. But that's it. When we think of the Trinity, maybe we can get into it a little bit more. I have a lot of notes on this, but sometimes I think I bring too many, and I have to stop doing that. So I'm, I apologize to you that sometimes I get too much as a teacher and academic. And I shouldn't do that, but maybe you just want me to tell you the answers and go home and say goodbye, even if you don't understand. You don't think we can handle it, or what? <laughs> oh, I do. I do. <laughs> now, when we come to the Trinity, and this may be hopefully helpful, <coughs> the Trinity begins with God. Then we have the Son. And then we have the Spirit. Originally, the doctrine of the Trinity in the history of the Church was not a Trinitarian, per se, pointed discussion. It was about Jesus. If God is one, they argued, then who is this Jesus of? And if you've ever read or pronounced the Nicene Creed, even some of the others, it comes in, I believe in God the Father, Son, Maker, so forth, so forth. And it goes on, homothusis, the Father, and the Son, da, da, da. And at the end, they say, and then the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been long neglected. We know what he is, we have little phrases to tell you, but we really don't know. So, there's a relationship here, a relationship here, and a relationship here. What are these relationships? 
I want to suggest to you that the sun is the objective. Now, here's where language is failing. He is the objective manifestation of God. What is God like? We look at Jesus, so now we know. And so as Christians, what we want to celebrate, because here it is the Son who brings about redemption. And so when we worship, thank God that he saved us and delivered us and forgave us. That's not unimportant. But you've got to remember that all of that comes from here. That this takes place is because of this person's decision, whomever you want to do with it. It is God. Sometimes if you look at some of the hymns, and a person like me has to be very careful and say, Lord, help me with these sins. Because they write things, and I say, I wonder if they understand what they're saying. <laughs> but that's me, so I have to say, Lord, help me. <laughs> there was one last Sunday, a phrase, and, and death is a lie. Is death a lie? It seems pretty real to me. And it is, in fact, God's judgment upon us for our sin. So I'm not sure if that was a term I would use, but that's just me. But it is here. The plan and purpose begins here. It is God who initiated this. Though I may not understand what this is going on here. So the spirit is the subjective dimension of God's nature. These two things, subjective, objective, and the essence of, of the Trinity is here. Okay? Now, it's important for us to remember that. Now, traditionally, we have a problem with language, because what do we call these three things in relationship one with another? Well, we had a problem in the early church. They didn't know what to say. So it came up from the Latin. These are persons. <coughs> There's the person who got the Son, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But they didn't know what to do. <coughs> the Greeks chose the word, and that is prosopos, which is translated as persons. The problem with persons, unless we work on it, is its relationship, especially in English culture, between an individual. But a person can embrace being an individual, but an individual is more than a person. A person, an individual is somebody that you can categorize, define, do all things, yeah. That's it. But we get it mixed up. I go to class and say, how many persons were in your class? I mean, how many individuals attended your class? But you are more than what I can put in a computer. Well, your computer, yes, they're married, they've been married this long, they work here, you weigh so much weight, you're so tall, so forth. We got you. <laughs> no, you don't. There's much more. So when we come to person, we run into a bit of a problem, but I'll come back to this again. Okay? What to call person? There were two parts, and I don't want to try not to spend much time on this. But there were two branches of the church. There was the Latin church, and there was the Greek church. Three in one. Who are these threes in one? Well, the Latin church said, and I don't know why you need to come to this, but it's just the academic in me. 
chose a term called usios. <clears throat> usios means being. Well, what are you going to do over here with three? Now, here's where language, and maybe why we don't want to deal with the Trinity, because ancient language, we have no idea what it means. So three persons, they said he's one usius and one hypostasis, and three hypostasis. One is the hypostasis. If I get up and into, my thing's not working so well, but this is H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S, hypostasis. You have it, you have this word used, say for example, in Hebrews chapter 3, and chapter 1, verse 3. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, if I can get to it. At the very beginning, talking about in the past, God spoke to our ancient ancestors through the prophets many times in various forms. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made all things. Verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Now the next, and the exact representation of His being. These English words, the exact representation of His being, is this word hypostasis. He is the hypostasis. Hypostasis, if I can translate it for you, at least from my perspective, refers to an essential. Underlying fundamental essence. Now you need to remember, God is not three beings in one person. He's not one person with three beings. He's not even three persons in three beings. But God is, he is, he's not, let me say it. God is not and three persons, nor is he one essence with three persons, but he's one essence in three persons. In other words, these three, whatever you want to name them, are essential for the one to exist. God is not a unity. God is a unit. Not a unit, but a unity at this point. So these three are very important. So what do we mean? We have traditionally called these persons. So what do we mean by person? Well, I think, don't you have now? I gave you this. I think it's somewhere. Oh, it's the bottom of the Trinitarian, Trinitarian outline. This is merely for you a suggestion, okay? I did this for my students back one day. Well, I need to do this for myself. I'm going to come back to this again. Person in the Trinitarian formula is one essence in three persons, denotes Here's my words. A conscious, definable, distinguishable capacity. In other words, God can do several things. Maybe two. And be himself. I put in the word hypostasis just because it's used so often. Intrinsic to the divine personhood of God. I want to suggest God has, God is not a person, but God has personhood Personhood tells me more than an individual. God is an essence who shares and interacts with us. That I take as personhood. So we looked at these kinds of things a little bit. I just thought I would share that. So let's go back a little bit, if we may. And uh, I'd like to do, you have an outline. I'm not going to use it. 
and saw the Holy Spirit in Trinitarian context. Do they have a copy of that? Yeah. It's on the front page. Yeah. If you go down, you'll say introductory presuppositions. I have that spelled in a large part I, significance I talked about, I've also included, you do not have. What do you mean by onto relations? Well, that's what uh, one of the Cappadocian fathers used. Onto, they're onto relations. They are nature relations. Onto is from our word ontology, refers to nature. And Nazianzus, I think it's Cyril Nazianzus who said this phrase, onto relations. You don't need to know this. But onto means, onto relations means there are relationships at the very nature of God between all of these people. It's not that the Trinity has three and there's a fourth basis to which they all come into. These three are essential to who they are. <coughs> Let me see if I can make an uh, analogy here. Not a good one. Not always good. But you and I are persons. Know this word as humans has a lot of different meanings and struggles. I, I like to use the word we have personhood. That is, we can act and function in particular ways. God has personhood. Now, you and I have a body. We have life, we have a soul, but we also have a spirit. These all can function in, in us without thinking about it. My body can get hungry, it can have pain, it can always, it's real, it's essential to life. This body functions because of the life that is within it. And we also act in the spirit. We all know people who they have such a beautiful spirit in them. Kindness, generosity. It's not really a thing, but it is a spiritual thing that I share with others. As a Christian, I try to get this spirit to function in a Christ-like manner. Where does personality come in? Is that in the spirit? Well, yeah. It's kind of a general term. Personality is an overall thing of your conduct. How you function and interact in certain ways. But we are Trinitarian in the ways ourselves are Trinitarian in some general respect. Having said that, I'd like to do two things. I have nine, but I'd like to do two. I'd like to turn here to two things to talk about that I think are essential. God and essential to the Spirit. The first one is I'd like to talk about the personhood of God. What do we mean? Now I've called it over here a capacity. I'm not sure that's the best word. There are three independent action capacities within God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm not sure that's the best term. But it's the only one I can think of at the time. Dimensions in God? What do you want to call that? But the person was God. In relationship 
the spirit in relationship to God. If I can divine the spirit in relationship to God, the Holy Spirit is the revelatory the liberatory expression or encounter with a personal God. The Holy Spirit is in the Trinity, it's that which unites the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is in some sense the mind of God is certainly the truth of God. The Holy Spirit comes forth to explain to us what we can otherwise understand in terms of mystery. I mean, or even in our lives with regeneration. Scott uh, Wiggins told about this young man when he spoke to us, who was kind of an intellectual guy and didn't understand the Bible studies came back and suddenly this guy was a dynamic Christian. What happened? <laughs> the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is that dimension of God who explains what the person God's plan and purposes are. I know it because I have contact. The Holy Spirit helps me to understand. He brings to me the mind and thoughts of God. All right, so let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Romans 12, that you may be transformed in the renewing of your mind. So my mind becomes very important to me. The Holy Spirit does this. Always. Well, when you come to the personhood, and we talk about person, it began, well, if you go back, if you go way back into the history of the church, Back to the Reformation. The dominant idea of person was reason. This comes by the what's the thing said? The human person is a rational substance. So forth. Both Theseus said this. Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. Descartes was a philosopher of the 19th, 18th century who wanted to find out what is really real. And he chose doubt. I'll doubt everything to see if it's true. Came to himself. I think I'm doing it. So I think, therefore, I'm. that was his basic approach to understanding things. Well, it's not just that God is a person and reason. And that comes out of the enlightenment kind of idea. But God is a person. And person is different in the classical area, in the classical world in which the theologians were talking. To be a person meant to be defined not internally. This is the Western idea. How you feel, how you think, what's inside of you. You think differently than animals do. You have all these other capacities. But in the classical world, to be a person was understood externally. 
and was had external confirmation. That is what makes you a person. Not because you think this way or that way. And this now will be brought to the persons of the Trinity as well. A person is someone who performs in a way that makes them special. Now first it began, I think it began, began and you could use it, see it in locations. And then later in some key ethical way and so forth. In Greeks, when they looked at it, the word prosopon, P-R-O-S-P-O-N, was the word they used. This was originally in its meaning a mass or a face. It was a mass, body-length mass that they would put on the stage and wear. When they had another play, part to play, they would take it off, get another mass, and put it on. They played that part. So a person became the representative. <coughs> then they moved from the mask itself to that which it expressed, the character that expressed. And so that's how this word began. For example, you have uh, Paul of Antioch, or Cyril of Alexandria. Uh, that's because these little cities had very distinct kinds of identification. We could, in the broadest sense, say, oh, you're from the South. <laughs> How do you know that? Well, the way you speak, some of the manners that you use, so forth. You're a Southern person. That's just the kind of way the person developed. And we might say, well, where are you from? Well, I'm from Alabama. Oh. Or whatever it might be. Then it turns to ethical kinds of things. Richard the Lionhearted. So they got names like this. Or you can get it besides that, you can get it to the jobs or tasks that you perform. Any of you are from some European names and you've examined the meaning of that name, it might be. You are the herder of the pigs or something. You are the horse catcher, or could be I can But we don't look at it, we just looked at the sounds. They did not. They looked at inner meanings of how things function. That's how the word person came to be in the midst of the Trinitarian, Trinitarian persons that existed at this time. And so you have that. So this is something to say about person. It, it re referred to a particular character that a person exhibits. And I say, yeah, he is a Southerner. Have you heard him talk? Have you heard them in their graciousness? Southerners are very gracious, hospitality people. Yeah, he's a true Southerner. And that is confirmed by my interaction. So what the Spirit and, and the Son are, are revelations of the personal character of God in interaction, confirmed by our interaction with now, the last thing I want to pick up with you. I gave what well, you don't have. I gave you the outline of the sermon, but you don't have it. Called the wind of the spirit. You don't have this. Yeah, yeah. We have something in the room. What do you have? Oh yeah. Now, this is the outline of a very distinguished English minister who wrote a book entitled The Wind of the Spirit. And in that he starts to draw from this several characteristics of the Spirit. 
And I thought it would be interesting for you to see how he associates certain characteristics of, of Jesus through these kinds of things. I don't want to deal too much with them, but the second one, you know, he says, the sovereign freedom of the Spirit, the wind blows where it pleases. And he says, just as it is difficult to control the direction of where the wind may go or to dictate where it may go, so no person, no church can domesticate the Spirit or dictate its operations. We have a tendency to do that. Uh, you, you don't have any of that. No. But we have a tendency to say, well, this is where the Spirit will work. This is how it will work. This is what it will do. And he's forever upsetting our kind of neat little tiny plans. But that's the power of the Spirit. So having said that, there are another kinds of things. Nicodemus is a passage. Nicodemus, a teacher of Israel, does not understand what he's talking about. And he's talking about being born again. I do not understand these kinds. And you have it all over. It seems to me God is always upsetting our neat little plans. I mean, why choose that Jesus comes from the parochial little village of, of Nazareth? And why not choose me to be born? Why not go to Rome or big city of Corinth or somewhere where he has all the things he needs to do? So when God comes to this, it's an interesting kind of way of the last thing I want to talk about, not only person, but power. This is an interesting one for me. Because every time we talk about the Spirit, we always talk about power. We have it in our church. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to be witnesses. Both in Jerusalem and support. So power. This power is ultimate power. I want to quarrel with this a little bit. And you please disagree with me if you wish. I'm not sure that's how God reveals himself. We have a tendency to look at some external manifestation of power. You're driving down the road, you see one of these huge earthmen. They pick up half of them, blow it away. Man, that's like God's power. And so we absolutize it, transform it, and apply it to God. My thought to you today is, that is not how God, well God can do that obviously. It's the sovereign power of God. But God does not show himself that way. How did God come? In weakness, vulnerability, without authority, without position and submitted himself to all kinds of harm and hardship. Christ does not come that way. And maybe if I'm a follower of Christ, <laughs> I need to take that carefully. I've said to you before, I sometimes stand in amazement why, why did God choose the Incarnation? I mean, why when God decided to save the world and to do all the things that he's done through Jesus Christ in weakness and helplessness and without authority, without status. Why come this way? What does that tell me about God? Now God will someday come in great power and great authority. He will just 
Bell was all able with great force and great power, no one was standing. But basically, Christ did not come that way. He came with weakness, vulnerability, limitation. But that's not my way, Mr. But that's way. So I don't object to power, power to transform a life who's weak and helpless and with no direction, and God takes hold of him. I have a grandson. From sister's boy who was into drugs, into everything, whole family, brothers and sisters were all believers, he was not. But one day God used somebody to touch his life, and his whole attitudes and outwards changed. You know, his second son was a missionary with the Church of God and doing a great job. God comes in, that's power, but it's a unique kind of power. There I want to say, the omnipotent power of God, the awesome power of God, God's sovereign, I will use this way, God's sovereign power is the power of love and grace. That which unites the three together is this almost incomprehensible love of God that emerges between the three. Unites them together, lets them have authority, depending upon what God is So for me, the power of God is the power of that love. And that should encourage us, for Paul will end Romans, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one is love. You cannot defeat it. You cannot, from things past or things to come, things in the future, things I've done, which the evil one loves to tell us. Look at those bad things you did. How can God continue to love you? In the Romans day, about 38, 39, is there. So I want to say, I understand how of God in love and in grace. Why in the world, God, would you allow yourself to enter into this world, become one with this rebellious, sinful creature that you created? Or even in another. God, what were you doing when you gave them the phrase, you are in his image? I can see the angels said around them. Do you know what you're giving to these folks? This remarkable gift? Wait a minute. And I don't know if they have the image of God in some angels, but I know that he gave it to us. That is now you can, this creature in his, his or her creaturely life, reflect the very character of God. And he didn't just pop it in. It is the work of the Spirit, so powerful. One last thing. Oh, I made more than I wanted to You may have it in the back, the marks of relational power. Did you hear that? On the last page. Oh, next to the last page. Next to the last page. I put in that other thing. This is from uh, Richard Foster. Are you familiar with the name of Richard Foster? He's a long time writer of spiritual things, spiritual growth, spiritual. Uh, he became a discontent at Fox College out of Oregon. So he goes there and it's part of the faculty, but he just spends time writing. 
And he wrote this. And I added this by Sherry McAdams. I don't know where I got it. The only cure for the love of power, which is Mark's art world, is the power of love. I'm not sure we as Christians have really grasped the significance of the power of love. Some of its characteristics are here, humility, self-limitation, that is, I don't always have to be first. Joy. Joy I would put with peace. Vulnerability. I can be open and honest. Submission. My boss says, do this, and I don't want to do that. I say, okay. I do it for God. It doesn't mean that I can't say I don't think you're right. Freedom to be for God. Let's take a look at Romans 8 quick. In just a couple minutes, I will promise to get you out of I gave you a little outline of this, I think. So it says exposition of Romans. Do they have this too? No, we don't know. Well, no, I don't think so. No, you don't have it. It doesn't make any difference. I think we, we had some of that last time. That's right. If you turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 11 simply speak of the indwelling of the Spirit as the answer for overcoming the power of flesh and death. He goes through this whole section talking about what Christ has done. Go back to verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering so that He might condemn sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully matched in us. Who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. Those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, and the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. On and on. He talks about this. We've talked a lot about that in this section. Romans 7, Romans 8, 12 to 17 talks about overcoming the Torah or the law in 18 through 20, uh, 12 through 17. The possession of the Spirit entails the, the cessation of the power of the Torah. And if you go down to verse 12, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it, uh, to the flesh, for you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the demand, the misdeeds or trickeries of the body, you will live. And on he goes on. Verse 15, For the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you will live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about an adoption of sonship. And he goes down. Verses 18 to 25, The Spirit strengthens our hope in the future of God's promise that will come to pass. Consider our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared, verse 18, of the glory that will be revealed in us. For creation awaits with eager expectation. That's a phrase also used by Peter, since we are waiting for the coming of the Lord, we wait with eager expectation. What does that mean, um, eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed? That must be like a the well, yeah, that will take place there. You're in uh, which verse? What, what, what sons of God? Children of God. Saints. Yeah. Why would they be revealed? Wouldn't it be 
Creation was brought to chaos and decay under the judgment of sin. They're waiting to be back to their original purpose for which God created creation. Creation does not function exactly as God intended it to function. You have all kinds. I don't want to push it too far, but you have tornadoes, you have other hurricanes, you have crops not producing as they could produce, all kinds I think it's referring to the time of his his return yeah. when we'll be revealed for who we are as yeah. his children. The world's going to know at that time. Well, if you go down to 18, you know, 20 rather, for creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We don't have that yet. Anyway, just to give you an idea, that's where I put that. There is a really tough section here that maybe I ought to just leave it all and come to that. In Romans chapter 30, I'm chapter 8, verse 30. What do you want to do with this? We have to go back to 29, even to 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. How do you handle this predestination? <laughs> what, what does that word really mean Is it when you translate it? It's a good, good thought. It comes from two words, really. And I thought about doing more of this, but I get too much into stuff. I feel bad about that, and I appreciate your hanging in there with me. I take serious. Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your mind. I take that seriously. But predestination. Or to predestinate comes from two words. The first word is pro, which means before. The last word, destiny, destiny, could be there. It's the word orinto. Orinto means to set out conditions, plans, purposes. For example, if I want to go to Harvard University, there are certain conditions that I can meet before I can get there. My grandson wants to go to Stanford. Well, he looked it up on what are the conditions. He's not sure he can meet all the conditions. These have been predetermined. Now, our problem is that we connect this predestination with sovereignty. 
God is sovereign. And therefore, sovereignty here refers to absolute control. Control. God looks down. He chooses you guys. He chooses all of you. My wife. No, I'm sorry, but you're not going. Because God is in absolute control. But sovereignty refers not so much to individuals, but to God's purpose. Both in creation of the world and creation of humans. Don't overlook in this passage. He's talking about here, throughout this section, don't worry, you can have hope, you belong to me, and I will bring my promise and purpose to completion. He's not talking, in my view, about these two words, which are God's chosen and they're really great. The rest of us are still struggling to love the way. I think sovereignty refers to God's intention or God's purpose. God created the world a certain way. Why that way? Because God wanted it. And now it's that way. Now in sin, it's not functioning. God has promised us a certainty of hope in his love. Will he do that? Will I make it? <laughs> I haven't been so good this year, Lord. Am I still okay? Yeah, you're okay. Because God's sovereignty is in that purpose of redemption, fulfilling things for his children, and that will be done. And I think that's why Paul has this message. Who shall separate? Don't worry about it. God's in control of this redemptive purpose. Your task is to bring as many people to participate in that as you can. Well, that's what we're saying. Quickly dealt with. And the rationale of God's promise comes then at the end. And in 30 and 35, I take as the whole indwelling spirit confirms the certainty of God's love and redemptive purpose for us according to God's plan. Don't leave God out of your worship. I understand it's natural to do so. Because in Christ, God did all of these things for us. And I naturally want to praise for me. Worship comes in a different style. Worship for me, not how loud I can praise or sing. For me, worship is meditation and silence and adoration. I bow before this God that I cannot comprehend. He loves me. That's God who wants to do something. I just want to lay on my feet and bow in prayer and thank you. Anyway, that's the way I see it. Well, thank you, everyone. I appreciate that you're hanging in there with me for a while. I know I got a little more academic than I should have. You did pretty good. But uh, I hope you got something